There we go. Some enthusiasm. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, it's so good to gather together and so good to start this uh, sermon in uh, Acts chapter 7. And again, it's incredible, again, when you look at the whole circumstances that happen to be right here. Stephen has been arrested. He's been brought forth uh, before the Sanhedrin. He's been brought up again on crimes that happen to begin uh, against Judaism. And verse number one reads this way. It says, and the high priest said, are these things so? You know, and if you can understand the whole chapter, chapter number seven, you have to understand that, sta- that statement, are these things so? You know, what are these things that he's alluding to? What are these things that he's talking about? And basically, again, it comes back to chapter number six and verse number 11, where it says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So what he's charged with is blasphemy. And you have to understand that blasphemy was a serious crime in Judah, in Jerusalem. And the reason why is you're speaking against God. You're speaking of untruth against God. And God is a God of truth. And the penalty, again, for blasphemy happens to be against stoning. And stoning was basically taking, a, taking the person out of the camp or out of the city or out of the town. And the, and the whole town, the whole city would do it, and they would pick up stones. This was a judgment by everybody, and they would pelt the individual until they were dead. And it was a serious crime. Again, it had internal ramifications when people came to believe blasphemous things against God. And that's the way, again, it was handled. But the question we have to ask ourselves, what are these blasphemous teachings that Stephen was teaching against God? And you have that indictment in uh, verses 13 and 14 of the last chapter. And it says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And let me just give you the short answer of the indictment that happens to be against um, uh, Stephen. It's basically this. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah and life and life alone is found in him. You know, and they bring up two aspects, again, um, uh, and you can almost see the illusions in Stephen's preaching of these things. And that happens to be, again, the law and also the temple worship. And it was basically saying that somehow, through the teaching of Jesus being the Messiah, through this gospel that he is teaching, he's teaching the, uh, the, uh, the abrogation or the nullification of the law of God. Also, again, he's trying to destroy, by destroying that law, to destroy temple worship, which was so endearing to these individuals. And what we have here in chapter number 7 is Stephen's defense. It runs all the way down to verse number 50. In verses 51 to 53, we have the application, or we have the indictment leveled against the Jews. The Jews have brought an indictment against him based upon what he preaches in this sermon. He levels an indictment against them. And we have that in verses 51 and 53. And let me just say this. This is probably the the, uh, full sermon. You know, up until now, in the book of Acts, we've gotten uh, summary statements. We've gotten little uh, snippets of various different sermons that happen to be right here. But this is the first full sermon that happens to be recorded in the book of Acts. And think of the ramifications of that. Because this is the first full sermon that we have recorded that happens to be in Scripture in the Christian era that happens to be right here. And it's loaded with the Old Testament references. You know, and he really wanted the Jews, he really wanted those who happened to be, again, in his audience at that time 
to realize their misinterpretation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I find passages like these are so important because it helps us exegete our world, doesn't it? It helps us, again, understanding everything that happens to be going around us and to realize that times are different, the customs are different, the situation and cultures are different, but not much has changed. You know, we realize that people still make assumptions about Jesus Christ and quick assumptions about the gospel of Jesus. And I think these passages are are helpful because that might describe you this morning. You might have made assumptions about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you start to see other people making assumptions, you know, such as in this passage of scripture, it's easy to see where you have gone wrong. It's easy to see where you have jumped to conclusions where you ought not to have jumped. And so, you know, when you look at this sermon, I ask you to please, again, look at your own heart. Look at the own, the, the own, uh, your, your own indictment that happens to be against you when it comes to the scriptures. And I think these are really good for us, too, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say this about 2024. 2024, if you're going to live for Jesus Christ, if you're going to truly make much of him this year, you are going to have opposition in your life. You are. You know, people are going to be against you when you try to live, when you try to speak for Jesus Christ. The only question that comes out of that is how we're going to respond. So often when people oppose us, we take it so personally, don't we? And we walk by our own wisdom. When we come to the book of Acts and we see these various different responses to these charges, to these indictments, to these assumptions, uh, to these suppositions that happen to be against Christianity we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt how we should respond, how we should again magnify and glorify, how we should praise the Lord Jesus Christ, how we should make much of him instead of trying to make much of us. So, so this morning, I just want us to get uh, started in the sermon. Uh, Mike always teases me. Again, he always thinks I should be paid by the verse. And we're only going to go through a couple verses today. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing to go through this, but it's, it's incredible. And I hope it will be really encouragement uh, to us. I hope it, again, it will help us to stand in uncertain times. And we certainly are living in uncertain times and be a bold witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really hope if you have made assumptions about Christianity that as you look at this passage of Scripture, that you will see that the only hope truly is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. So first of all, I want us to understand the recipients of the sermon. And you can see that in verse number 1, again, with the high priest speaking here. It says, and the high priest said, are these things so? And, and then we have the response right after that of Stephen. And when you... And this is the amazing thing. I, I, I don't know if you've ever get that. I, I think if you happen to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're vocal about your faith, sometimes you're just flabbergasted at the response of other people, aren't you? Because I think it's the most wonderful message in the world. I, I'm, I'm always flabbergasted by anybody who would ever reject this, this message. The God of all eternity knows about you and knows that you have a need in your life. And he sent Jesus Christ, the second person in his triunity of God, came in human flesh and lived that life that I could never live, that he might die. He might take the punishment that I deserve for all of eternity, that I might live for him for all of eternity. Now, think about it. Who could ever be against that kind of message? I mean, it's a message of God's love. It's stunning, you know, and it's ramifications in each one of our lives. And even if we don't believe it and say, well, that, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Even if we don't believe it, you, you think people would just be so thankful 
for how it's used in other people's lives. I mean, think of Jerusalem at this time. You know, think again, and uh, don't, uh, don't be mis misguided. There was many harlots. There was many drunkards that happened to be there. There was many of the normal, and the religious leaders would call this the rabble or sinners that happened to be again right there. And you can imagine how that whole society changed because of the preaching of the gospel. Thousands of people were coming to Christ, and their whole lives were being altered. You know, they turned from their sinful ways. They started to live in holiness. They became interested in learning the Old Testament and seeing this God, seeing this Savior of the Old Testament. And the whole society was changed. And you can imagine in the midst of that, you know, people, you know, it was easy to see the grace of God. It's easy to see these lives changed. It's easy to see people are excited about God. Now think about that. If you claim to be a lover of God, how could you not be excited about this? And yet that's the very case when we come to chapter number 7 and the indictments that are brought against him. Because in verse number 1 again, we read, And the high priest said, Are these things so? You know, and here's the high priest. He, he, he would have led the trial, and he's basically saying, Are you teaching contrary to the Scriptures? Are you blaspheming in the name of God? Are you speaking against this precious law that has been given to us by God? Are you speaking against this place where we worship this high God? That happens to be again right there. And we realize, you know, with these words of the high priest, they're really not interested in the answer that Stephen's given. They're really not interested, again, in his defense. You know, there's no witnesses that are called to the prosecution because it's much like Jesus Christ's trial. You know, what they want is blood. What they want is execution. What they want is the death of this man. They are ruled in their inner person, in their inner hearts, by hatred. And the question it happens to be, again, when we go over the gospel, when we see what the gospel is, how can anybody be ruled by hatred when it comes to this gospel message, when it comes to those who even proclaim the gospel message? And one of the reasons why people are so controlled by hatred is basically when they look at their lives, they want to believe this. Nothing needs to change. Nothing's wrong here. And think of it with the religious leaders. Because wasn't, and it wasn't that that way when the religious leaders looked at their life. Look, we obey the God. We obey God. We obey the commands. You know, we follow him. We're worshiping our God. We're all right. Nothing needs to change here. Even when you look at the normal rabble, the normal sinner that happened to begin in Israel, they went to the temple. You know, they knew something of the law of God. They knew something of following this great God that happens to be again above. You know, basically, we're good people. We're not pagans like those that happen to be over there. Nothing needs to change. So what is all this talk about repentance and bowing the knee of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, we're righteous. You know, nothing needs to be altered. And you can imagine the hostility in their minds. I mean, take Saul of Tarsus. Remember, Saul of Tarsus is present for all of this things going on. And think of him. You know, think of his self-righteous heart. In fact, he talks about his life uh, pre-conversion over in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised of the eighth day, 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness. Listen to what he says in the end. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. If I am blameless, what needs to change? Right? That's it. You know, and that's really the affront of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it really challenges us with our own self-righteousness. Our natural bent is we're not all that bad. Our natural bent is towards self-righteousness. And think of what the gospel does. Because our hearts are black, aren't they? They're stone cold before God. They're dark. You know, and we're all right in the way that we are. Certainly other things outside of us are wrong, but we're all right. And then this gospel light comes, and this gospel light all of a sudden shows some of the darkness, shows what's under the darkness, shows the sin, shows again our misdeeds that happen to be in our life, shows what needs to be changed. You know, and that's why the gospel preaching has always started with sin, hasn't it? Or it's always, again, emphasized sin so much. I'm always amazed when you look at Paul's presentation in the opening four chapters of the book of Romans. He spends three and a half chapters. Think about it. Three and a half chapters talking about what? Talking about sin. And then he has that last half chapter in, in uh, chapter number four, where he brings justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. You know, it's absolutely amazing. And why? Because they have to see your sin. And when Stephen goes right here, Stephen is going and, says, and trying to show them their need, trying to show them their need, trying to show them their need. In our world today, sin is a dirty word. And when you look at it, so many people who preach the gospel, and let me tell you, it's really not a gospel, omit sin from the presentation. And the reason why is because it's so offensive to the natural human Mind to the natural human heart. I am all right. I am all right before a holy God. How dare you tell? Say that I'm not all right. Stephen begins with sin. Stephen wants them to know again of their misdeeds that they are not all right. But another reason why people hate the gospel so much and even lash out at the gospel so much is because because of this. Think of this. Not only do they think they're self-righteous, but they think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they see things more clearly than others. Isn't it true? You know, I see things so much more clearly. I see things, again, so much more um, evident as far as who God is. You know, and how, again, I will even be accepted into his presence. I mean, isn't that the religious leaders? Think about it. The religious leaders would never say this, that the word of God is not the word of God. They would never say that the Old Testament scriptures were never inspired, were never given by God. We follow the Old Testament. That's what they would say. But they would say of Stephen, he is wrong in his interpretation of scripture. So much so that they wouldn't even listen to him. I mean, think about it. How many times have they heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet they really have never given it a hearing. They've never looked in the Old Testament to see if these things are so. They've never again weighed it, again, what they believe in the, with, the, with the scriptures to really see these things are so. And why? Because they, they are adamant in their hearts and in their minds, they're closed-minded about it, that we know better. We are right. You are wrong. 
And Stephen, again, indicts them with this. I mean, even Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, as to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, I see things. I'm a Pharisee. As to law, I understand it so much more clearly than any follower, again, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what people think. They think they have a superior knowledge of who God is, of his ways. You know, and even Jesus tried to indict the um, uh, Jews in the same way, because when Jesus again came to them, they thought they were righteous through the law. And he gave something called the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? You know, and it challenged them, didn't it? You think you know the Old Testament law. You don't know the Old Testament law. You think it's a way of righteousness. It's not a way of righteousness, right? You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say, if anyone who has hatred in his heart against another brother has committed murder already. Think about it. How many murderers are here this morning? Well, let me just say, there's no non-murderers that I happen to be here in God's sight this morning. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Anyone who lusteth in his heart for another has committed adultery already. How, how, how many serial adulterers happen to be here this morning? You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies. Right? And think of it, because he says something. I, I think a lot of times we don't see the radical nature of the gospel. The radical nature of the high calling in God's sight. And he says something, again, so radical in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 20. This is what he says. For I tell you, in other words, take note unless this. You want to appear in the presence of God? He says this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Think about it. These are the professional law keepers. You will never enter the kingdom of God. And he challenges them. On their old understanding, right? right? We know, we know, we know. And the whole point, Stephen, the whole point of Paul, the whole point again of Jesus, is a law was never meant as a system of righteousness, a way of earning my position, my standing before a holy God. You know, Paul, after he became a believer, figured all these things out. He had the light of the gospel that came shining through. And in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 21, he says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Otherwise, don't throw it out. Don't think it's useless. He says, For if the law had been given, that could give life. Here's the point. This is what the Jews would say. This is what more people would say. I have life before God because of how I live then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, this is what the law does, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those, here it is, by simple belief in him. It was to show our need of a Savior, show the need of a Christ. You know, it's the same as the temple... Uh, worship the temple worship it was to show the inadequacy again of the sacrifices every day every week every month month after month after month and the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin there was a need of the perfect sacrifice the once and for all sacrifice would come but they would ritualistically bring their sacrifices ritualistically offer them up you know to prove their own self-righteousness and the question is often asked 
you know, if you died today, you've heard this question before, if you have happened to be, again, uh, belonging to a Bible-leaving church. But if you died today and you appeared before the gates of heaven, and Jesus Christ, again, was there before the gates of heaven, and he asked this question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And may I say the vast majority of people, even the vast majority of those who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, would start talking about their works. I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm quite good. And this is what the scriptures say. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And here's my plea this morning. Don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions about yourself, about your own righteousness that happens to be again in your own life. All of us are under the judgment of God. And if there's any hope that we have as sinners, it has to come outside of ourselves. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. That's where Christ enters in and lives that life I could never live and die as my perfect substitute that I might have life. You know, and that's, that's Stephen's whole point. Not only, again, are we sinners, but there is a source of life. There is a remedy. And look at what he says in verse number two. He says this in verse number two. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, let me just say a couple of things before I say a few things about this verse. And one is that Stephen grounds his argument in the Old Testament. Right? It's all in the Old Testament. In fact, again, if you find and look through very meticulously the, the Sermon of Stephen, you'll see that he never grounds his argument in the New Testament Scripture. And you know why he never grounds his argument in the New Testament Scripture? Right? right? There is no New Testament Scripture. It isn't given. You know, and there's nothing to quote. But not only that, the source, right? The source of authority in the life of this Jewish audience happens to be the Old Testament. And when you look at the Old Testament, there is so much about Jesus, right? Such as where he would be born. Such as he would be born of a virgin. What his character was like. What he would do. In fact, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, points to his coming. If you read the Old Testament scripture, if you see the failures of the Jews over and over and over and over and over again, and you look at the various different offices and see how various different individuals failed in these God-ordained offices, and the promise of the coming of the Messiah, you know, as you, as you close the book of Malachi, it really leaves a longing for the perfect prophet to come. You know, one who didn't give snippets, but one who would give the totality of the revelation of God. It really gives you, again, a longing for the perfect priest who would come and would offer that one-time sacrifice that would appease the anger of God, the judgment of God. And it leaves you longing. You know, you think of all the wickedness of the kings, even the good kings that happen to begin over Israel. And you look at all their wickedness, it really gives you a longing for the perfect Messiah, Redeemer, King that would come. And so what he does is grind, uh, ground his whole argument in the Old Testament scripture to show their failures, but show the truth and necessity of this one who would come. 
But he also grounds it in the Old Testament. And I think this is so encouraging for us as believers in Lord Jesus Christ to remember this, that our faith is a historical faith, right? It's not a philosophy. It's not a group, again, of wise, wise sages who've been on a mountaintop and been thinking for a while and have come up with an idea of who God is. This is God's history, isn't it? And God not only gives his history, but he interprets his history as far as who he is and where redemption is found. You know, and, and, and let me just say this. The, the start of this sermon is absolutely striking. Because think of the indictment. Think of you if you were going to give an argument. Here you are. I'm accused of blasphemy against, against the law of God. I'm accused of blasphemy against the temple. Where would you start if you knew the Old Testament? You would start maybe in one of two places. One happens to be the book of Exodus, right? We have the law start being given in the book of Exodus. Either that or the book of Leviticus that deals so much with temple worship. But he doesn't begin there. He begins with Abraham. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why does he begin with Abraham? And we'll answer that in a moment. But let's just look at that and think through this verse. Think through what he's saying. Remember, his life is on the line. And verse number two says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. All those words are important, aren't they? You know, and I love how respectful. Uh, you've, <sighs> online is full of individuals, and I call them angry Christians. You know, and they just go there, they're in their little, I don't know, they're downstairs in their basement, and they're just typing away. And they just want to blast someone and blast someone and blast someone. You know, and I love this because Stephen is so respectful. You know, he says, brothers and fathers. Otherwise, he realizes he's not above these individuals. The same salvation that he's preaching about, the same defiance against God, he realizes exists in his own heart. He needs this Savior. They need this Savior. And he says, brothers and fathers. And when he says fathers, he's, he's talking about the religious leaders, the lead, the, those, those who happen to be the elite. You know, and he recognizes their position. He recognizes their stature. And then he says something that I think we need to hear. And he says these words, and I want, you to, I want you to listen to them. Here they are. Hear me. Now, why is that so important? And it's so important because they have all these assumptions, they have all these close things, and think of it. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of Christ, right? That's the inlet. And he's saying, don't be closed-minded. Hear this. Hear this defense. You need, and let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think that is good advice. I think that's good counsel for every single one of us in 2024. Because think of it. You know, why do we have worship services? And we have worship services to praise our great God. But in the midst of those worship services, when we're praising our great God, there's something for us, isn't there? There's an intake of the word of God. And I wonder how we look back at 2023, how we came out, how we slept through services, or how we didn't come out to services at all, how we uh, you know, had other activities, and we chose all those other activities, and we did not give ourselves an opportunity to hear the word of God. 
How many of those opportunities were missed where we could have had that intake? Because we're always saying, I want a greater faith. I want a greater relationship. I want a more intimacy with God. But how much intake of the Word of God did we really have in 2023? How much of the opportunities when we could hear the Word of God did we take in 2023? And here's the challenge because it's 2024, right? right? It's a new year. You know, and Richard was up here, and he was making the announcement. He was saying, here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity. How many of those opportunities are we going to take to truly hear the Word of God, truly be molded into His image, truly walk by faith in this great, incredible God that happens to be again of Scripture? I think it's a great counsel for each one of us as we begin this, this, um, this year. But I really love the way he starts this sermon. He starts this sermon, he starts this gospel presentation, you know, in the way every single, I think, gospel presentation should start. And you know what it is? It's this. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he says this, the God of glory. Where does he start? God. Right? Right? We assume. We assume people know about God. We assume that they know who this God is, right? And, and he doesn't go in a huge explanation because they knew the Old Testament. They knew something about the character, the holiness, you know, who God happens to be. But he starts here, the God of glory, right? And this is the one that we're all answerable to. This is a great authority. There is a God and every single person who dwells on earth is accountable to this God. And then he comes to Abraham. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. And you have Abraham. And think of it. If you would ask a Jew in the ancient world, I don't know what it's like today, Steve. I, I would think it's the same. But if you asked a Jew in the ancient world, why they have eternal life and why they can be absolutely sure of eternal life. They, they, they might give several answers, but they'll give this answer because we are the children of Abraham. We are superior stock. We are the superior ones. Look at our pedigree. We come from, here it is, Abraham. But here's the question. Abraham is the father of the nation. But who's Abraham? Right? Who's Abraham? God called Abraham not when he was in Haran, not when he was following the will of God, but when he was in Mesopotamia. And particularly where he was in Mesopotamia was in the era of Chaldees. And you know what he would have been in Ur of the Chaldees? You know what everybody was in the Ur of the Chaldees? They were moon worshipers. And who was Abraham? Abraham was a moon worshiper. He was an idolater. Now, think about it. Are idolaters those who worship the creation, right? The moon is up here. Those who worship the creation more than the creator God. Are they worthy of the judgment of God. And every single Jew would say, any idolater is worthy of the judgment of God. 
Well, think about it. Here's the founder of the nation. Here's the father of the nation, right? Right. We are the children of Abraham. Right? Here's the father of the nation. And right here, he's guilty, and they would all have to admit it. Wait, God called him. Not when he was here, when he was over here. When he was a moon worshiper. And I know how the argument goes. The argument basically goes like this. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I understand that. But Abraham came to his senses. You know, something again moved inside of him. You know, he started thinking about it, and he really cleaned up his act, and he got going. He moved to Haran. He moved again out of this uh, idolatry, and he really started to search, and he still really started to wonder again about the true God. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's not what the Scripture says. It's not what it says. I mean, look at the verse, because the initiator here is not Abraham coming to God, but God coming to Abraham. You know, while he is still a moon worshiper, because it says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, here it is, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Right? He's not in Haran saying, God, where are you? I'm trying to find you. He's in Mesopotamia. And the initiator in this salvation, this is why salvation, this is why we teach over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Salvation is by God's grace and God's grace alone. Isn't it? He called him effectively. This is sovereign, gracious, loving call in his life to salvation. That's what's happening right here of a moon worshiper, again, of, of Abraham that happens to be again in his life. You know, in fact, even as you look at Abraham, even after he trusts God, he fails him many times. And, they, and, and this is where salvation is. This is where his calling is in his life. This is why God makes a covenant again with Abraham. It is through, it's because God is merciful and God is gracious. It's never, salvation has never been by Merit. Never. Whether you go in the Old Testament scriptures, whether you come over the New Testament scriptures, it's never been by meritorious works. Now think about it, because that's where the Jews went wrong. And that's where so many miss this today. I'm able to come through my own merit. I'm able to come through my own efforts. I'm able to come through my own worth. And right here from the start of the nation, it was never through merit but by the grace of God that lifted Abraham from paganism to follow him. Now think of it. Because how about you? You know, I think a lot of times, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we forget about God's grace. We forget, again, how this whole Christian experience, how this whole Christian life, how this whole relationship, how this whole standing began in our life. Don't we? You know, so often, again, when we come to Christ, there's this excitement, there's this enthusiasm, there's this thrill, there's this peace, there's this joy that happens to be in Christ. And we realize salvation is by this amazing grace of God. But somewhere along the line, it became about our efforts. It became about what I've done. 
I mean, you look at the bickering and bickering and bickering and complaining and complaining and complaining that's done among those who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize some of our suffering, some of our situations can be tough. But we're angry at people, and we're really here, when we're angry at people and we're angry at situations, we say God is absolutely sovereign. This is what we're saying. We're angry at God. God, after all I do for you, look at all the church services I've been, look at all the Bible reading I've done, look at all the prayers that I've offered up. After all I do for you, this is what I get. Folks, that's merit. Do we really recognize what we deserve before a holy God? Do we really recognize the host of sins that come our way when we're living by merit and not living by grace? You know, do we realize a meritorious life produces anger, produces frustration, produces depression, produces a whole host of sins that happen to be in our life? And my problem, even though I think it is not my circumstances, but I have forgotten my, where I've come from. I've forgotten the grace of God in my life that I need in all my life. And the question happens to be again this morning. Have you forgotten the grace of God in your life? Are you continuing to walk in that grace? And I don't think, you know, we think, well, you know, that's kind of a hard question. It's not a hard question. You know, you know what you see? Just see what's coming out. You know, do I find myself complaining more? Or do I find myself praising God more? One response speaks again of a life of merit. The other speaks again of a life of gratitude in the great grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's one challenge we can bring from this passage of Scripture. There's a second challenge that we can bring from this passage of Scripture because I think it's so easy in our lives many times to live life in the church. Praise God that we live life in the church and we ought to live life in the church. But that becomes our meritorious work. Think about it. If I was to come, out, come before you before service, or some other believer was to come, up, come before you before service and ask you this question, are you a Christian? And that's an easy question because it's only a yes or no. But the second question is, why do you believe you're a believer? Why do you believe that you're a Christian? That's a little more tricky, isn't it? Because I think the vast majority of people would say something like this. Well... Let's see, I believed on Jesus, I've made a profession of faith, I'm a member of a Bible-believing church, I'm involved in these ministries, I read my Bible daily, I pray daily. Now that's tricky because, because that's, that, that all we're describing here, and I want you to realize this, is not why I am a Christian. I am describing the fruit of salvation right I'm talking about me I'm not talking about him why am I a Christian because of what Jesus has accomplished because of what Jesus has done because of God's amazing grace that has flooded my soul and shown me my, my, my sin that I might trust again in this great Christ 
You know, the reason why I bring that up is because many times we look at a passage like this and we say they're so different, they're so different, they're so different, they're so different, they're so different. But really, my confidence is not so much in Christ. My confidence is in me. So picture it. Roads are a bit slick today. On your way home, and something happens. And in a blink, you're before the gates of heaven. And Jesus asks you that question. Why should I let you into my paradise? Why should I let you into my glory? Why should I let you into my rest? What would you say? The vast majority of professing Christians would start to talk about their works. The vast majority of people in our our world would talk about their good deeds. You know, and we're either trusting in our deeds or Christ. And if we're not trusting in Christ, we're trusting in our good deeds, we're going to hear Jesus respond. You know, just like he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, listen to these works. Did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, think about this, think about hearing this, I never knew you. Depart from me. And look at what he says at the end. You workers of lawlessness, you never saw your sin. See, there's only one way of salvation. And it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace alone. We trust not in ourselves, but in another. We trust in Jesus Christ. Let's all make sure of our calling and election in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. As we have our hearts bowed this morning, as we begin this first service of 2024, I want you to ask, You know, nobody's looking around. Nobody's thinking about this. But I want you to ask in the deepest recesses of your heart, because God already knows this. If you were to die today, do you have that assurance of eternal life? Are you trusting in self? Are you trusting in Christ? Peter said there's no other name given among men where we must be saved in the name Jesus Christ. It's in him, in him alone. And let me just give you a moment. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted Christ, admit to him right now that you're a sinner in need of Christ. Thank him for what Jesus has done on your behalf in taking that burden away. I'm just going to give you a minute. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. God, we realize that we can be like the Jews in Acts chapter 7. 
we can make so much assumptions. Lord, about our own hearts, our own lives, we can jump to so many conclusions about those people who keep preaching Jesus. And yet, Lord, we recognize that all is not all right. We recognize, Lord, that many of the things that we have believed have really been erroneous. We recognize, Lord, through the authority of what you have spoken, not of, not of what others have said, that all have sinned. And all means all. And all have come short of that divine standard of glorifying you. And we realize it deserves judgment. It deserves eternal judgment. But God, we thank you in your love. You've made a way. Lord, we thank you for God so loved the world that he gave. We realize that you've given something that none of us deserve. And that is your son. Your son has come and lived that perfect life. Lord, we can't even imagine what it was like to live an absolutely sinless life. And you came. But Lord, not just to give us an example, but more importantly, Lord, to die a substitutionary death. That any and all who trust in him and trust in him alone will have eternal life. Lord, I pray if there's some that happen to be again here this morning, if there's some that happen to be watching online outside of Jesus Christ, that you would move in their hearts, that you would use your scripture through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to shine that light of the gospel down and give them eternal life, that they might start walking, might start praising Jesus Christ, and their confidence would be in one person and one person alone, and that is Christ. We thank you so much. Just be with us as we close now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.